be reading from the book of Joel. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, a swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? <laughs> Reading. Joel and then watching the Day of the Lord video is like, what an intense way to start the new year. <laughs> like a locust attack. Happy New Year, locust. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Uh, if you do have a Bible and you want to follow along, you can open up to Joel chapter 1. That's where we'll be for the next couple of weeks. How many people in here, uh, by you just raise your hand, you can nod at me. You can not participate. That's always an option. How many people in here like New Year's resolutions? Yeah, like New Year's resolutions. This is the thing I've realized about myself very recently, which is that I do like New Year's resolutions, which I don't really like about myself that I like New Year's resolutions. I don't feel like it's really on brand for me. Um, but I do. I like New Year's resolutions. Like, I I like the beginning of the year. I like the fresh rhythm. I'm kind of an optimist, which I also don't really like about myself. And so I like the moment to imagine what the new year is going to be, to be reflective, and to ask myself a set of questions. And the, the big question that I always tend to find myself asking is, like, who am I? And as of right now, like, who am I, and is this the person that I want to be? And the new year always feels like a chance to to reflect on that in a way that is positive and optimistic. Even if the year before that was hard or bad or negative, there's something about doing it again afresh that feels hopeful. And I think that feels especially true in 2020. And I don't know if that's because 2019 was such a strange year or maybe 2020 is a decade and so it feels like a clean start to something. But, but it feels like a fresh moment to ask ourselves, who are we and is this who we want to be? 
A lot of us do that at New Year's. However, New Year's is not the only time that we can ask ourselves these types of questions. Often, we are forced to ask these kinds of questions at traumatic moments or big moments or life-changing moments that occur all throughout the year. So maybe you changed jobs because you lost a job or were laid off or you know, some kind of big vocational change happened. You just woke up and you were disappointed in your job and all of a sudden you have to ask yourself, like, who am I in light of this large change? Sometimes some kind of trauma can force us to ask that question. A death or a hurtful experience can force us to ask a question of who are we? Sometimes it's not an event or an experience, it's actually some person who plays an important role in our life and they can ask us the question, who are we, that forces us to reflect, to get introspective and to make some changes. When I was in, this is going to be the most traumatic moment for me when this happened, when I was in 11th grade, I had a theater teacher that I respected just so much. I was a theater nerd, if you can't just tell by looking at me, and uh, I, nice, <laughs> And uh, so I just respected this person just immensely, but I was also lazy, as most 11th grade boys are. And, and I would miss as often as possible rehearsals. And one day he pulls me aside, and he, he, we were having this very serious conversation. And he looked at me, and he was like, Jonathan, you are the most talented disappointment I've ever met. <laughs> Glad you feel for me. Now, we had a long history of like a a committed and like I knew he was for me. I trusted him. So that moment did not bring shame. It was a moment to be reflective, to be introspective, to ask myself, maybe I am a disappointment in this situation. And in that moment, I began to ask that kind of question. Who am I and is this who I want to be? Well, today we start a new series, obviously in the book of Joel. And prophets are weird and prophetic literature is weird, but If you were to boil down Joel's kind of core message, his core idea, he's asking Israel, is this who you want to be? He's looking at Israel in light of the things they've experienced and in light of the the, the life that they've chosen to live and in light of their history and in light of their calling and in light of their story. And he is asking them, Israel, who are you? And is this who you want to be? Who are you in light of God's story and yet the decisions that you've made? And is this who you want to be? I think for a lot of us, as we kind of look at going into Joel and even the reading that Sandy gave us at the beginning, it's like hard to process through prophetic literature. It's some of the most tricky in the Bible because it is full of confusing language and weird imagery. And even today's text, you're like, is Is that a real locust attack? Is this some metaphor that I'm supposed to be able to interpret? Is this some kind of vision that's happening? Like, how do I understand this prophetic literature? But just like we can simplify Joel's message into asking the people, who are you? You can kind of do the same thing with all prophetic literature. The prophets are people that God calls to remind Israel, to remind Judah, sometimes to remind the world who God is, and what it looks like to be his people. Now, there is sometimes confusing moments that get, like, built into the text, and sometimes there's weird visions, and there's often history that we don't understand because we're not as, like, immersed in the context as the people who are living it are. But really, at the end of the day, the prophets are people who are called to remind Israel who God is and what it looks like to be his people. 
So most of the things that you're reading are actually references to Torah or to their history or to the story that comes before. And in light of whatever current moment is happening, they're trying to remind Israel, like, this is not what it looks like to be God's people. This is not how it's supposed to play out. This is not how you're supposed to act. This is not how you're supposed to understand yourself. This is not how you're supposed to treat the other nations around you. This is not what it looks like to be God's people. And they do it differently. Some do it like lawyers, some like poets, others just like frustrated shepherds. And they take the story and history and promises of God's word and they, they open up Israel's context to remind them what it looks like to be God's people. So a famous prophet like Ezekiel, he's doing that in light of the people being led into exile. He's like, you're being led into exile and maybe you don't understand why. Was well, because you stopped being God's people. And here's why you, this is how that happened, and this is how it played out. And here's, let me help you understand your history and the things that you did so that you can understand why you stopped acting like God's people. The video we watched referenced Amos, who's kind of watching Israel grow rich and prosperous and forgetting God's way. And so he comes to them and he's like, hey, this is not what it looks like to be God's people. So through these different moments and through these kind of different experiences, the prophets show up and they challenge the people of Israel to remember who they are, to be God's people. And Joel is trying to do the same thing, but the thing that makes him a little bit of an interesting prophet is that we don't know the details of his situation. So we don't actually know when Joel is writing his book. Normally we know, like Ezekiel They're being led into exile. We have a date for that. We have context for that. We have history for that. We can lay out what's happening in that moment. With Joel, we don't really know when he's writing, which opens it up to lots of interpretation and lots of questions. We don't know specifically what sin or issue the prophet is trying to address, what motivated his writing. But what we do know is that Israel has stopped acting like God's people. And Joel has shown up to remind them what it looks like to be his people again. What it looks like for Israel to live in light of God's story. And he's going to do that primarily through calling them to reflect on their situation because of a new experience they're having. So just like us sometimes reflects on our life after New Year's or we reflect on our life after a job loss or a death or some life-changing circumstance— Israel has just experienced a life-changing circumstance, and Joel is like, hey, this is a perfect moment to get introspective, to get reflective on what it looks like to be the people of God. We don't know all the details of the circumstance, but we know that something massive happened. Joel begins his book by calling everyone who's listening to pay attention to this devastating event. In Joel 1, verse 2, he says this. He says, hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land, Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? What is the thing that happened? What does he want them to reflect on? Well, he says it right after this. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust have eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So Israel has just experienced like a locust plague which is literally the most Bible-sounding thing you could possibly have happen. 
But what's fascinating is that nowhere in the text does it say, like, this is a thing that God causes or why it's happening. And so the assumption is just that this is actually kind of a natural thing that Israel is experiencing. And that is true. Locust plagues or swarms happen somewhat naturally. At the beginning of the service, uh, Sandy was telling me that there's been locusts in Ethiopia recently. If you know your Utah history, then you know that Utah suffered from locust swarms in 1848. I think we call the miracle of the gulls, which is why the California seagull is our state bird, because supposedly the California seagull swooped in and saved all the Mormon crops. Right, so locust attacks are like a somewhat normal, normal, common thing that happens when the environment is right, when drought is happening, when the hatching is at the same time locusts happen. We don't know anything else beyond that, except that Israel has experienced this massive natural disaster. And the destruction of the swarm has been just absolute. Throughout this text, Joel gives us these different pictures of how massive the destruction has been. In verse 4, he says that the food and the grain, the kind of the basic needs of life have been destroyed. My favorite moment in this is in verse 18, he says the destruction is so bad, the cows are perplexed by it. Which I don't know what Joel was doing to learn the cows were perplexed by that moment. But he's like, this is so bad, cows are confused. Verse 16, he says that all the joy is gone from the people. And in verse 13, he says, this is, destruction is actually so bad that it has disrupted the worship of the people because they can't offer their grain sacrifices in the temple. He says, like, so all of our like, natural ordering of life, the things that we understand about normal, basic functioning life, it is totally disrupted by this plague of locusts. It is such a big moment that it is, has it is turned everything we normally do in life upside down. And Joel doesn't answer the question of why it's happened. He doesn't even seem concerned by it. Instead, Joel talks about this destruction, and then he uses this moment to challenge Israel to get reflective. Like a death or a job loss or even the new year, Joel uses this moment to invite introspection because he points to another moment in Israel's future or in the world's future that is like this moment the day of the Lord. In verse 15, Joel says this. He says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. It's like you've experienced this moment, this natural plague, this disaster, and it was life-changing. But there is another moment that is potentially coming that will be even more life-changing, the day of the Lord. And as we saw in the video, the day of the Lord, like it is meant to be a moment of hope for the people of Israel. It's meant to be a moment of rescue and redemption and reconciliation. But all of a sudden, Joel is aiming that day at the people of Israel. And he's saying, the day you hope in, the day you were praying would rescue you and undo evil and injustice is actually now being aimed at you. Because you have traded in on your unique identity as the people of Jesus, the people of God. He says, so because of this is happening, this day has been aimed at you because you are now a part of the thing in the world that needs to be undone by God. Will you reflect on who you are? Will you take a moment to ask yourself a question, who are we and is this what we want to be? Will you take a moment to get introspective and reflective? 
to question who you are and who you want to be. Now, it's different for us, because none of us in this room, I imagine, have experienced a locust swarm. But I think actually a lot of us are in a similar space to the Israelites after this disaster. Maybe it was just because 2019 was weird, but I feel like as I sit with people and talk about how the year went or how their post-experiences have been, there's like a tension or or a disappointment or even a confusion about what has come, what has passed. Maybe you've experienced a death or a trauma or a job loss or just like a nagging sense of disappointment. In that moment, like it does for the people of Israel, challenges us to ask the same kind of question. Who are we in light of this thing that we've experienced? Who are we and what do we want to be? And all of us, like Israel, we have different ways that we can respond to that question. Different ways that we can either be reflective or not be reflective, or different ways that we can live out of that question or not live out of that question. And that's always the issue for Israel. Because Israel is always wrestling with, are they going to be God's people and respond to God's invitations in his way, or are they going to be like the world around them? And are they going to respond to Joel's invitation the way the world does, the way Babylon does? Are they going to live out of God's reflection or live out of Babylon's reflection? We see this wrestle play out with Israel all the time. The way they often respond to God's invitation is through self-sufficiency. That instead of listening to him, instead of reflecting deeply on him, instead of turning and trusting in God, they decide that they're going to double down on their own independent efforts and get self-sufficient. So if you look at the story of Israel, when things go bad, they often ask for a king. They ask for a larger army. They ask for larger economics. They start... Uh, building larger barns or replacing the walls, they double down on their own ability to protect themselves. They seek bad alliances to protect them from their enemies. And so you have like one moment in the story where they're rescued from Egypt, they get to build their own nation, and then they get afraid and they go make weird alliances with Egypt, the people who had conquered them. And you're like, what are you doing? That seems foolish. But in fear, they get self-sufficient. They try to protect and self-preserve. That's what self-sufficiency is. is. It is an attempt to protect ourselves from our fear. And the thing that makes this a tricky response is that the world around us always celebrates self-sufficiency. So Babylon celebrates self-sufficiency. America celebrates self-sufficiency. The world celebrates our ability to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, to conquer life ourselves, to, to go out in the rugged wilderness as a rugged individual and overcome. It celebrates our ability to be self-sufficient. But I love the way Alcoholics Anonymous describes self-sufficiency. One of the terms it uses to kind of like undermine self-sufficiency is this phrase, white-knuckled sobriety. Which is such a powerful term, white-knuckled sobriety. It's like you may have on your own effort achieved a period of sobriety, but you have dealt with none of the underlying issues. You're just like gripping so hard to overcome, but the fear, the anxiety, the trauma, the sin that underlies that has never been dealt with. 
And so instead of actually healing, you are like a pressure cooker that's about to explode in shame. Because you only white knuckle for so long. We may celebrate self-sufficiency. We even celebrate self-sufficiency with resolutions. But in a much less intense way, we only get so far on white-knuckled resolutions before we fail to overcome our own issues and go relapse back into normal life, which most of the time just produces shame. And when we do tend to experience shame, the second thing that we do is we tend to disengage altogether. If we couldn't overcome through our own self-sufficiency, we just disengage. So if we have shame around something, even like our resolutions, we just disengage from our resolution. Shame around relationships, then we tend to just disengage from relationships altogether. Shame in our perception of ourself or our perception of God, we disengage. And the irony is that just like self-sufficiency is about protecting ourselves, disengagement is about protecting ourselves from the thing that we fear, but it only sentences us to more of it. Shame can never be dealt with in isolation. Fear can never be dealt with in isolation. Just like it can't be dealt with in self-sufficiency. Now, it's easy, I think, to talk about this when we're diagnosing it in Israel or we're even being able to diagnose it somewhat like objectively as we stand back and look at it like doctors. It seems logical, but in Israel's situation, there is legitimate fear motivating these actions. In some experiences, there's a nation that's actually on their borders, threatening to conquer them, threatening to take them over, threatening to exile them. In this moment, in Joel, their crops have literally been destroyed. It's not a metaphor. It's not figurative. The locusts have literally destroyed their crops. The cows are actually perplexed. So there is a legitimate fear that underwrites what Israel is doing. And so Israel responds because their reality around them is frightening. It is actually scarce. And this is what makes the moment of Joel so fascinating and so amazing because Israel's life is genuinely frightening. And what Joel challenges them to do is even more terrifying in light of scarcity. Because instead of doubling down on self-sufficiency, instead of filling their barns with grain, instead of making alliances in order to like get food into the nation, he doesn't ask them to do anything. No practical steps, no like easily achievable steps, no tools for managing anxiety. Instead, Joel calls them to embrace their weakness and to be vulnerable before God. In the midst of their fear, and scarcity, and the catastrophe that they have just experienced, in in light of their legitimate fears, Joel challenges them to be vulnerable with themselves and before God. And specifically, he invites them to do this through lament and repentance. In verse 13, this is what Joel says, tells the leaders of Israel, put on sackcloth and lament. O priests, wail. O ministers of the altar, go in past the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Not to be practical, not to secure food, 
not to get the army. He says, lament. Lamenting is the practice of voicing pain and naming evil or injustice, sin. And, and it's a practice that we do when we've experienced pain and evil and injustice or when we've perpetrated it. In both moments, their call is to lament. Israel is obviously in the wrong in this moment. But they're obviously also experiencing something wrong. And in both moments, Joel says, lament. Name what is wrong. Name what is sinful. Name what is painful. Bring into light all of those fears and hurts and pains and evils that you've done and experienced. And I think that, that thinking about this, just kind of like, again, objectively, we would think that naming sin publicly like that or naming their pain publicly like that would actually produce shame, which is what they're trying to avoid. But it is the exact opposite. I love, I always love the way that Brene Brown says this. She says that shame hates to have words wrapped around it. Right, and as hard and as painful as lamenting for Israel would be, acknowledging their own sin, acknowledging their own wrong, acknowledging the wrongs that have been done against them, it is the path to freedom. To bring to light those things that would fester into dark, it is the only way for them to, to move forward into actual freedom. Because not only does it name it, but what naming it does is it gives us space to repent. Which is the next thing that Israel is called to do, to name the pain, and then as they name it, to repent of it. Job says this, Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Cry out to God. Ask for help. This will be a major theme throughout the book of Joel, which is the practice of repentance and comparing it to fake repentance and real repentance. This is a big issue for Joel. He'll say in chapter 2, verse 13, to describe true repentance. He says, Israel, rend your hearts and not your garments. He said, rend your heart, not your garments. We want something that is real, not performative, not religious, not moralistic, not simply a ritual. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Big issue for Joel is that, that fake repentance is just more self-sufficiency. It's doing the right religious thing, relying on the self, checking the box. And Joel's like, that's not the option here. That doesn't lead to freedom. It doesn't lead to hope. It doesn't help us once we've lamented. All that does is double down on the same thing that's already produced so much shame. True repentance isn't measured by performance. True repentance is the reception of God's mercy. True repentance is the reception of God's mercy. This is why for Joel it's so essential that it is true and genuine and real. He's like, once you have named what has caused so much pain, once you have named your sin, once you have named the hurt and the destruction, repentance is you receiving God's mercy, turning to God and actually experiencing his grace. Lament names the sin and the wound, and repentance accepts God's gifts of grace and mercy and healing. 
This is what I mean when I said at the beginning that, that Joel is calling Israel to be vulnerable before God. Because lament and repentance are practices of vulnerability. We go to God with our sin and our fear, and we risk in trust that God will receive that, that God will forgive us, that God will accept us, that God will take us in, that God will actually do the thing that he promised to do, heal and forgive and extend grace. So we practice vulnerability, we repent of our sin, trusting that he will receive us confident because he always does receive us. This is what Joel calls Israel to do at their weakest. At their very weakest moment, Joel calls Israel to be vulnerable, which is so crazy. That's the last thing that we want to do, but it is the thing that we need to do the most because it is what roots Israel and us in God. The same thing is true of us, that lament and repentance, the practice of vulnerability before God, they are terrifying, especially when we need them. When our life feels scarce, when it feels like we have just experienced a disaster or we've just experienced something that calls us to reflect on who we are and what we are, Vulnerability, lament, repentance feel terrifying. But it is what we need the most. Because when we are vulnerable before God, we get to see again and again that our God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is the thing that is supposed to distinguish Israel from Babylon. First and foremost, before Joel calls Israel to do anything else, he's like, hey, would you, who are you? Would you remember who you are? And the way he calls them to do that is through repentance and lament. So this is actually the very first thing that would distinguish God's people from the world, that they would be vulnerable before God, that they would name their sin and seek to trust him. This is what distinguishes them. Their refusal, hopefully, to practice self-sufficiency or to disengage and instead to trust God and give him their vulnerability. And the same is true of us. Yet this thing that distinguishes us as the people of Jesus is our vulnerability before God. That we would be willing to repent and lament and trust that God gives us mercy. This is why we wanted to start 2020 with the book of Joel. As intense as it is and as weird as it is to begin the first Sunday of the year with a locust attack, we, like Israel, need to be reminded who God is and what it means to be his people. Because we, maybe even more than Israel, have a long habit of self-sufficiency. And we need our self-sufficiency challenged. Because there are so many things in our world that offer the false hope of self-sufficiency. Even as we begin the year, there are so many things that double down on the false hope of self-sufficiency. Maybe it's resolutions. But 2020 is also a year of, of a massive political movement. And, and I don't know how you are, but my habit is to replace my faith with politics. I've confessed that multiple times up here, and I can already feel it coming again as 2020 is approaching. Whereas now we're here. To replace 
my faith with like political engagement and say that is the expression of my faith. And that's true and that's right. But before it's political, before it's demonstrations of power, before it's building a wall, before it's collecting grain, Joel would say it is lament and repentance that distinguishes the people of God in 2020. That it is vulnerability before God that distinguishes the people of God. That is what would form us into a people distinct from the nations around us. And that should be our first set of practices as we think about this new year. And so, Missio, as we enter into a new season, it's loaded with hopes and loaded with expectations, and many of them good and beautiful and right, and it's also loaded with things that are terrifying and unknown. Would we first be a people of vulnerability before God? A people of repentance and lament. That's what we're going to do right here and right now. Just as we close up, we will gather around this table. And as you come to this table, would you practice repentance and lament? Maybe it's all of 2019, you just need to bring that to the table and be like, this year was disappointing, I need to repent I need to lament those things. And as you receive the bread and the cup, would you know that you are receiving mercy? You are receiving grace. This is the first place that we practice. And as you practice it here and as you receive grace and mercy, let it form you into a people of vulnerability. So as you leave this place, that could still be your practice. Not just here, not just in this moment, throughout the week throughout the year. Missy, let's pray. Jesus, first, thank you that we get to be a vulnerable people because you are vulnerable. So we know today that as we bring our sin and as we bring our hurt and as we bring our pain and as we bring disappointments and as we repent of those things or lament of those things, We know that you receive them. We know that you offer mercy. We know that you offer healing. So God, as we come to the table, would you you help make this risk and vulnerability a moment of building trust in you so that we would be a people who leave here consistently practicing repentance and lament. God, meet us in this moment. Form us into that kind of people. In your name we pray. Amen. Missy, we're going to keep worshiping Jesus. We invite you to the table. The cup is non-alcoholic. The bread is gluten-free. Everyone who wants to repent and lament is invited. There'll be people over here who want to pray with you. This is maybe a powerful moment to work through some of the things that we've talked about. Just go pray, repent, and lament with someone over there. Either way, would you continue worshiping through song with us?
the crushing and the pressing you are making me wise in the soil I now surrender you are breaking new ground and so I yield to you and to your careful hand when I trust you I don't need to understand so may 